I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi there. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, it will be Thanksgiving in many households. One of my absolute favorite weeks in the year, I'm often in wonder about the never-ending list of things that I am grateful for. And you are a big chunk of that. You fill my heart up with so much gratitude, so thank you. I hope that you are surrounded by love and or family and lots of gravy and mashed potatoes today. Today's conversation, I'm talking with a dadvocate who has led a fascinating career path through medicine and pharmaceuticals. His current role is Senior Vice President, Head of Development and Safety for Alexion AstraZeneca. He then became a rare dad to an adorable little girl named Valentina who has Smith-McGinnis syndrome. He brings such a valuable perspective to his work. And today we're talking about how those worlds collide. And he shares some of his insights as a rare dad and some of what he's grateful for because of it. Please enjoy my conversation with Gianluca Parazzi. Hello, Gianluca. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Effie. How are you doing? Doing so well. The day this show comes out, it's going to be Thanksgiving. So I just got reminded that it's almost Thanksgiving. So now I'm thinking about gravy and all of those things. That's fantastic. I'm actually going with my daughters for the first time to uh, Disney World. I can even talk about that, actually, if you want, because it's a it's a huge undertaking to bring a, a daughter with special needs to Disney World. I didn't think about it at all, but it's a huge undertaking for, for a caregiver. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I will ask you about that because that's a big deal. And how fun to do it over the holidays. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Good luck with that. Well, it, it's going to be very busy, but I think it's going to be wonderful. So, you know, I yes, I, I'm definitely happy to talk to you about what it means to organize a trip to Disney World. You know, that's actually something that I didn't think at all about before this discussion. But since you asked about Thanksgiving, I, I just remind that. And uh, I mean, it's extremely time consuming and the mind energy consuming to think about bringing her to, to Disney World. But I think the joy I'm going to have just to be able to do it and say at the end of the four days, I've done it. She's here. I have pictures and we did it together. I think it will be fantastic. Oh my gosh. Well, please make sure and share those with the rest of us. I can't wait to see it and hear about it. Excellent. Jean-Luca, I actually had the pleasure of meeting you last summer in Boston when I came to Alexion and hung out with some of your crew there. You are all so nice and wonderful. So can you tell our friends listening, what's your personal connection with rare disease and how does it relate to your work? All right, let's start with my personal connection. My uh, connection with rare disease actually started 
before my daughter Valentina to um, I was going back in my history a little bit in my life and in fact when I was an adolescent my best friend uh, his name was Antonio was diagnosed with a very rare disease called Fanconi anemia so he uh, he had a very low hemoglobin hemoglobin of four his life was extremely difficult that's a life-threatening disease at that time we're talking about the 80s and 90s early 90s the um, life expectation was about 20 years old and in fact he died at the age of 19 so we were best friends in high school and I saw the world through his eyes for during the entire high school time where basically you see a person that knows that his life is going to be very short because that's the average expectation of life and the older older person probably with the disease at that time was maybe 30 years old or something so he knew that anyway it was not going to last very long and so can you imagine somebody with a very rare condition, a hematological condition, least knowing that their life are going to be very short. So he was using and, and enjoying every single moment of his life. And he, I saw the lens of, of the world through his eyes for a long period of time. And I learned so much about the importance of light and lightness in life that I, um, I will always remember him for that. He was also, was also the, my inspiration to study medicine. So the reason I studied medicine was because of him, because of course he was very sick and we were best friends. And, um, and that's the reason why I went into medicine. Now, years later, I became a clinical immunologist because this disease was primarily a blood disease and, and, and he died during a, a, a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. So I was inspired to do that. And then like many years later, um, my daughter Valentina, and at that time she was one and a half years old, and she was diagnosed with a rare disease. So we're talking about probably 20 years later. And she was diagnosed with a very rare condition called Smith-Magennis syndrome that also radically changed my life. And the diagnosis was very difficult as very often it happens in rare disease. It took uh, over a year from going to doctor to doctor, trying to understand what the disease was about. And then finally, and most most importantly, getting the diagnosis dismissed many times, being like, oh, you're overthinking it, you're an MD, and that's why every child is different, is your first child, it's normal, and every child is different. But we knew as parents, because parents really know and sense it, uh, that something was wrong from the beginning, both in terms of sensory issues, uh, motility issues, but also neurodevelopment issues. Uh, she was not meeting the milestone, really, some basic milestones. So I forced several specialist appointments, including the neuro and neurologist, to finally give us the pediatric neurologist, give us the diagnosis. He said, well, actually, he said, I believe she has something syndromic and genetic, so let's do the full genetic testing. And that's where we found the, the diagnosis. And the diagnosis arrived on a piece of paper, so very impersonal, with no explanation whatsoever, no phone calls, which was very difficult for me and for, for both of us. And being a medical doctor, as it often happens in rare disease, despite the fact you've done an MD and PhD and all of that, I have no clue what Smith-Magennis was about. It's a very rare condition. You never heard, you don't study that in medical school. So you go on uh, online, you try to find out, and when finally we got the diagnosis. And why was that important? Because that also changed my career. Uh, as a matter of fact, at that time, I decided to, I was in drug development. Um, as an MD, I worked actually uh, very early on in drug development for research and development for new medication within the pharmaceutical industry, always in the R&D. I never did any commercial work. And within the R&D, I was working in immunology, so my domain of specialty. And, you know, with Valentina being born and my memory of my friend Antonio, I said, I think that's the time to switch the gears and go and work for rare diseases. At that time, I was at a company named Sanofi. Sanofi had acquired Genzyme, which was the, the number one company in the world for rare diseases at that time. In fact, Genzyme was the pioneer of rare disease. They opened the door for the development of rare disease in general, influencing also the level of regulators and, and really paving the way with the rare disease 
this world is today. So I moved to Genzyme. I became head of the development at Genzyme. And that's how my uh, my career now has got in some ways very close or closer to my personal connection to the rare disease. And, and I feel blessed every day that I can work in this area. Dang, Gianluca. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. And I'm really, truly touched how he shaped kind of your career path and put that human touch in it, right? And kind of really helped laser focus your perspective on what's important day to day. And surrounding Valentina's diagnosis and being in the clinic, I'm curious, being on the other side of the bench, right? And understanding the obstacles that families are facing when they have a rare disease child and navigating the system and even just getting that diagnosis. I wonder what were some things, if any, did you do to like kind of help families coming after you to better that experience? Or was that simply going into this business forever as a career path to make sure that your voice was heard in different areas? What I did when Valentina was diagnosed was to reach out to the patient foundation and the patient association for the Smith-Magnet syndrome, right? And, And that was the first step because I have no clue what the disease was about. And I thought, you know, there's nothing, no one better that that other people with the same syndrome or families with kids and children with the same syndrome to uh, to refer to, to be able to understand what the disease is about. And if you think about it, in 50% of rare diseases are genetic and uh, 50%, which means very very often 50% of the affected individuals are children and many of them are devastating and debilitating. So because of that, very little is known in general. Therefore, caregivers are in general, I would say the depository of all the knowledge and understanding of the disease more than any books, medical books, or any publications whatsoever. I'm saying that, you know, being, again, in, in the business, right, as a, as a medical doctor and a PhD, you would say science and, and publication drive everything else and knowledge and expertise. And it's certainly that science tells us a lot about the disease, but it doesn't tell what it means to a patient and a family to have the disease. So the reaching out to these families, um, for me, was absolutely essential to be able to understand about the disease. And what I learned very briefly is that very quickly is that there was a lot of, of assistance program to help and educate families on the day-to-day, how to solve day-to-day issues of the, of the daily life, how to be able to uh, have some kind of supports uh, either from the government or from other families to be able to live your day-to-day. But it was completely missing was any research uh, in the area, especially research in preclinical models, animal models, so that we truly understand the disease and the details. There was some research, but it was fairly scanty. So what I did, I gave to give it back to the community, the idea was, can I work with um, a research group or the research foundation to be able to foster research, to be able to find potentially and eventually a therapeutic intervention? And so what we did, we got together with a group of families. Um, actually, two um, uh, families had already started the smith Magnani's Research Foundation. What was very, very much in the in the beginning, and there was fairly little work done in, in, the, in the space. So I reached out to them and I said, you know, given my background, I would like to be part of this. So I became a scientific advisor of the uh, smith Maganis Research Foundation. We expanded the scientific advisor team to um, include additional people. Some of them were personal contacts from other pharmaceutical companies or people I knew had been working in the rare disease space. In fact, half of the people in the scientific advisory panel, believe it or not, have a a children, a child with smith Maganis syndrome. So either other scientists in other departments or in other uh, university, they are directly impacted. And that's why they they participated to the smith Maganis Research Foundation. So why that was 
important because by doing that, we laid the foundation of additional knowledge and expertise in the area. And we explained to the families that without that knowledge and expertise and understanding of the natural history of the disease, understanding of the underlying mechanism of the disease, we cannot build the foundation to then leverage that to be able to, to develop some therapeutic intervention in the future, basically some medication and medicine for our children. And for that reason, we started a number of preclinical projects with the help of my company as well. And uh, in those preclinical projects, I've been advancing over the years. And even today, we have very interesting data across the board with three major institutions. We're working with Yale. We're working with McGill University in Canada and, of course, Stanford uh, in San Francisco. So we are very excited about some of the advancement that we have been able to accomplish as, as a family, as families. And in fact, Maybe the last point I want to make is that all this was because of, of fundraising. Uh, so the generosity of either families with Smith-McGuinness or friends of families with Smith-McGuinness. And the Smith-McGuinness Research Foundation over the years was able to, uh, to raise, uh, I believe, uh, up to a million dollars, which have been dedicated fully to research in Smith-McGuinness. Wow, that's really impressive. I know we hear the word patient voice a lot, right? And it's almost turned into kind of a buzzword. The caregiver voice is a little different, even though we're still obviously talking about the patient. And I wonder what role do caregivers play in the rare disease patient journey and how can they advocate either differently or what's unique about them and why is it so essential? Well, you know, I think the caregiver can play most times a major role. So again, going back to the underlying rare diseases and conditions, if 50% of them are genetic and happens into children, you can imagine like everything depends on the parents, right? So how the disease is handled over time, how what can be done to be able to improve their conditions, what are the steps that need to be taken to be able to uh, uh, improve their conditions, or sometimes even, um, you know, try to prolong their lives of a few months. Some of these diseases are, are extremely aggressive and extremely difficult for families as well. So which really means that caregivers are the depository of the knowledge and understanding of the disease, which means that we, if you really want to understand what is the impact on a day-to-day -day life, it's the caregiver which will be able, who will be able, the characteristics of the disease and, and what is the day-to-day -day impact for, for, their, for their children. Even if some of the diseases happen as an adult, the reality is that many of the rare diseases, because there's no therapeutic intervention, happen to be quite devastating. So at the end, people do end up either in a wheelchair or not being able to take care of themselves. So again, all the burden goes to the caregiver. And the caregiver can advocate for themselves in multiple ways, uh, supporting their children. They can do it by fundraising, for example. They can do it by uh, organizing uh, family conferences where you can really discuss all the different issues. And those are extremely helpful because, you know, when you have an issue, you think about it, you talk about it, you will always have some other family who was in a similar situation. Some of them are older uh, kids or some of them have exposed, have been exposed to the problem before you. So they can give you advice. What they did will work for them or what did, did not work for them. Them. So those educational conferences are extremely uh, helpful. And in general, in addition to the educational session, you can think, that you think about disease awareness. In fact, the foundation, even of the research, is all about disease awareness. It's all about telling the world about this disease, giving a, a face uh, to this disease to the world. And this is extremely important to be able to foster research, inform uh, even scientists, and support the research as well. 
For example, registries are extremely important in the rare disease world. So having all the families come together and sign up to registries, which is generally family registries, where the caregiver very often put the information in, especially with their children, is extremely important because then you understand the national history of the disease. And why that's important? Because through the national history of the disease, you capture what happened uh, over time, and then you can measure objective measures, which are then used in clinical studies to be able to assess and see how the disease progressed over time, but most importantly, what happens if you give a therapeutic intervention, if you give a medicine? Are we doing better than the national history or not? Are we progressing the disease better or not? And those are key questions that registries uh, can answer. And that's why, you know, the um, uh, caregivers may have a huge influence there. Uh, in addition to that, the, caring, the caregivers and these communities of patient advocates can be very important to influence government and institutions to raise awareness. You know, very little is known in the rare disease world, very often, you know, if you go to uh, even to Capitol Hill and, and explain what does it mean, what is the impact of certain rare diseases, why the government needs to intervene very uh, heavily on some of those, it's extremely important. It's all about education, in fact, even of our politicians. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, you know, very often uh, the disease can be uh, either treated or the outcome is much better when you have an early diagnosis. You know, for early diagnosis, you need to have a system in place for early diagnosis. And that only depends on the willingness of certain governments and certain states, for example, to uh, put in place early diagnostics, for example. Uh, and I think that's another area where uh, caregivers can have a huge influence in the future uh, and, the, and the outcome of rare diseases. Yes, absolutely critical, especially activating those patient advocacy groups and gathering them together for those conversations and collecting that data. Yes, totally. I know you've been immersed basically since day one in industry, but I wonder after becoming a rare disease dad, how maybe your perspective changed in the pharma world. Also, I know Alexion's reputation precedes themselves, and I know firsthand how much you value the patient and caregiver voice. But I wonder, has there been anything specific that kind of changed your perspective around it all since becoming a rare dad? Yeah, you know, it's I'm, I'm going to touch upon a, a topic which is a little difficult sometimes because, you know, we hear a lot of of comments about pharma and the cost of medications, how high is the sometimes is the cost of medication, et cetera. But the reason I am mentioning that because being in the pharma business, I know how expensive it is to run clinical studies and run clinical research. I told you, even to do animal model early research, as, a care, as parents, we had to fundraise at least a million dollars, but this is just the beginning. If you think about the expense of a development of a drug is in the millions of dollars, or especially when you start clinical studies, it becomes much more expensive. So very often you hear criticism about, you know, drug and cost of drugs and medications, et cetera. What it really changed my perspective in a way is that, you know, as a parent, you always think, how oh, can I get access to my medication as, can this be um, as accessible as possible for, for parents? And I think that's a mantra that as a caregiver, I will always defend and I will always think, yes, we should, we should ensure access to everybody or the large number of people as possible. On the other hand, though, I also know that without a, a return on investment, true return on investment, there will be no research. In, in rare disease. And that's a reality. And that has been the problem for many, many years. Because, you know, as any business, if you do not have a return, if you don't have a, a return on the money that you invest, it's almost impossible to develop a new medication and develop innovation. And the innovation is something which leads to advancement, not only uh, in the science and technology for that specific rare disease, but also advancement to the society as a whole. And that's what people really need to understand. And that changed me completely the perspective. So yes, innovation is expensive. And 
that's why I think that it's also understandable if the cost of the medication in some situation needs to be high on the higher side to be able to then do new research and new innovation and to be able to develop a new medication. I often make the analogy when I think about that to go into the moon. And if you think about it, Alfie, Alfie, how expensive was for the uh, for us as, uh, for, no, I, I, at that time I was not American, now I am American citizen, but for the American citizens to pay the money for America to go to the moon. Well, it was very expensive. And why would you even do that? Why would you build a missile and then do the whole thing and in a spaceship and go to the moon? Well, going to the moon signifies reaching a, a goal and a target. But what we really got out of that is technology. The technology that we acquired as human beings, as United States of America, but generally as human beings, to go to the moon help us being better human beings overall. The satellite, for example, the, the phone, all the cell phone technology, all of that was developed because of efforts of that type. So investing into research and development and increasing spending money to research not only allowed to have new medicine, new medication, but also allowed then to develop the technologies like, for example, gene therapy that will then be used to a much larger scale and much broader patient population. The gene therapy has been the core, has been, of development has been rare disease because it's easier. That's the low-hanging fruit. There's been a lot of money put into gene therapy. Well, that will benefit people with rare disease, but it will benefit the overall society and the world and the science because that will change the practice and the way we work in medicine because of an investment that was done. And it's always an investment done. And again, the last thing I want to mention is that the United States are really well known to uh, paying for in, in innovation. And there's always a comment why we should be the only ones paying for innovation. But the, the answer for me for that, yes, you're right. But at the same time, at least there's someone is paying for innovation. And I think this country has an incredible value value for the globe, for the entire globe, because the entire world, because because of the investment, the innovation, we do things here that nobody else, they're done nobody else, no, nowhere else. And I think that we should be very proud of that. Yeah, I appreciate your thorough and honest answer. And yeah, the going to the moon just kind of made me think about the human genome product project, right? Like it was like $17 billion or something, and now you can get it for less than a thousand. Exactly. In the hundred, you're in 100 now. I, I heard the last one is like going in the hundred in the, uh, not even $100. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. It's an investment you do, which sounds crazy, but in reality, that brings benefit and value to everybody. So we should look at the much bigger picture and not you know, stick to uh, sometimes little things that really are no value when you look at the bigger picture. Right. I think most of us do understand the realistic idea of it being an investment, right? And it being about money. But I wonder what comment do you have on when a company stops their research program for a certain disease and shelves it and doesn't necessarily release it to the greater good of humanity, but they shelved it. So maybe it's not a great investment. I cannot comment on, on the companies that do that. What I can say is that in my personal experience in the R&D, the only moment that I've seen a program shelved has been because there's a true lack of value or lack of scientific data that would support the investment in that specific medication. So very often people say shelved, but what is the reason for shelving? Well, generally companies shelve things because there is a lack of value in the things that have been shelved or because the mar the benefit is so marginal that developing and doing efforts around that specific medication will not provide any true benefit to the patients, any true benefit to the uh, to the communities associated to that. 
In addition to that, the general philosophy, at least that we do in my, that I always done in my work, is that every single publication or programs or studies that have been negative, I think it's extremely important to publish that as well. Okay. Yeah. Jean-Luca, this is enough about work. This is Thanksgiving. Yes. And I kind of want to talk about gratitude and being thankful. Yes. And I wonder what aspects of being a rare dad are you grateful for? I am grateful for being reminded every day of what is truly important in life. Because, you know, when I see the struggles that my daughter has for very simple things, as simple as walking straight, and the gratitude and happiness of seeing her succeed in simple things like walking up a ramp of stairs and the happiness associated to simple things like that, then, you know, you realize that many times we spend hours or getting angry or being unhappy because of very futile and materialistic things, the new version of the iPhone, that we spend a lot of time wanting more objects around us to make our life more comfortable, etc. But then we miss the real value of happiness and uh, being healthy, being happy, and, and taking advantage of the beautiful things around us. Big understanding smile on my face. And I think for everyone listening, um, how impactful those little things are all of a sudden, right? And how bright they shine in your days. You're absolutely right. You almost are able to kind of slow down time. Yes. Yeah. And look around a little more than perhaps you were able to before. Yeah. Do you have a personal story of something someone did for you after becoming a dad to Valentina that you're so grateful for? A couple of things. So, one, it was a parent with another child with Magani syndrome who um, organized a day for me for to understand and know about SMS. It was literally right after the diagnosis. And I was in Italy at that time. Actually, I was traveling to Italy. And because my you know, my name, he assumed I was Italian and he reached out and um, and he said, I understand you have a child with SMS because I, I was posting on one of these um, uh, Facebook pages with, the, you know, parents with SMS it was the US Facebook, Facebook page and he was in the same Facebook page, but he realized, you know, are you Italian? I'm in Italy. So he started writing to me in Italian and I said, yes, actually, I'm Italian for my name. You're right. And and so and I told him I was going to Italy like the, the month after or a week after or something like that. I can't remember now exactly, but soon after I was traveling to Italy. And he said, oh, so why don't I get together a few families so we can tell you about SMS? And, you know, in a matter of literally a very short period of time, he put together a gathering of five families. And I could see the life of my daughter from a three-year-old, then a 10-year-old, then a 15-year-old, and a 25-year-old, and a 35-year-old. And there were different families with different stages. They came together. I could see these kids. I could understand what the disease looks like. I could see what an older kid looked like. I could understand the level of mental disability, the level of language ability of these kids, and all that. And that for me was a tremendous gift because as I said, you cannot understand what the disease is about on, on a medical book. I couldn't figure it out. Can my daughter speak or not speak? And how is she going to speak? Right? I couldn't figure it out the level of mental disability. They say mild, moderate mental disability. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean anything to anybody unless you actually talk to them and, and see? And Spinmagan is a very specific and peculiar syndrome when everybody has some a very defined mental 
availability and they define type of behavioral issues. It's very typical of every single child. It's replicated from child to child. So for me, that was a, a gift for life because, you know, I really understood what I was going through the rest of my life in a one-time point. Wow, that is a gift. And I'm sure it was almost a relief too, right? Like you got to see it for yourself. So it wasn't these looming can't-dos, won't-ever-dos that you were told in the clinic or perhaps read online in a publication. Yes. Yeah. Seeing their smiles is all the difference, really. So I know we talked about the fact that you're going to give Disney World a go for the holidays. So please tell me the fact that you guys are obviously looking forward to it, but a little insight on what it takes as a family to go on a trip like this with a kiddo like Valentina. So for this Thanksgiving, I, I thought about it and I said, what am I going to do? And, you know, it's very not easy to have this four days, you know, vacation time when I truly nobody's working and I can really have time for myself. So I said, okay, why don't we go to Disney World? I bought my brother already, my second daughter, Sophia, who's a typical kid, and she's five now. I brought her when she was four, and we had an absolutely huge amount of fun. And you know, I said, okay, I'm going to bring Sophia again. But then I thought about it, and I said, well, why not to try to bring Valentina too? You know, the easy solution is to leave Valentina at home and just bring Sophia. But I said, no, I think this year we should really try. And so what does it mean? Well, it means thinking about a lot of stuff ahead of time. So first of all, think about when and what time you leave in the morning and what time you leave in the afternoon. Valentina gets very tired at certain specific times. So you have to make sure that if you take a plane, everything is done around the time frame that I know she can do fairly well on a plane. And that's the first point number one, picking the right choice for a flight. Second, she gets very impatient in on the plane where she cannot have you know her iPad because internet doesn't work. So how am I gonna issue solve that? Well, you know, talk to the doctor. Is there any medication to calm her down, to make it even sleep if necessary? during that, that period of time. So that requires a conversation. The doctor, of course, knows her, knows the complexity of the syndrome and can suggest remedies that can help make the flight much easier in a way. Second, we need to bring a lot of things with us. So I, I need to bring, you know, the um, she, she sleeps in a special bed. So this special bed fits within a luggage. So I bought this, this bed and actually the way that the bed was even designed, this is a safety sleeper, is that they do come within a luggage that can be used for travel with the size of a luggage with an inflatable mattress. So I had to make sure to have the bed, the bed, the bed uh, ready because she needs to bring her own bed wherever we go. So a simple hotel room doesn't really work uh, for her. Then she has a special kind of stroller, which is really a medical stroller, is between a stroller and a, and a wheelchair. So the medical stroller needs to go on the plane. So I, that means that you have to call the airline and explain that two medical equipments, both of them are pretty large, can I put them on? And they tell you, yes, you can, but you obviously you have to let them know in advance and, and then they will be send somebody before you, you'll be the first one boarding because you have the ability to do that with a handicapped child. So that is for the, obviously, just the the going there and coming back. And then when you go there, it's like, okay, when I go to the hotel, where am I going to stay? And how do I get to the actual Disney World? So a normal family will say, oh, we just get the bus, go to the bus, and you go to Disney World. Well, the bus doesn't work for me because she cannot take a, uh, stay in a line. It's impossible for her. This wheelchair slash stroller is extremely heavy, so it doesn't go fit on a normal bus. And in fact, even the space will be very difficult. So actually, that doesn't really work. So how do you do now from a hotel room to go to the actual park? And so what I thought, well, this is Thing, let me uh, rent a truck. 
So I render a truck with an open space in the back. Hopefully it doesn't rain and that I can put all our stuff in the back so we can actually take the truck every day, go from the hotel, and then we can go to the actual park. Also, the hotel needs it to have an alternative because if she cannot tolerate the park or half time in the park, then she start getting crisis. You need to have a way out. So you need to go back to the hotel and be able to do something. So the hotel that I picked has some swimming pools, other things so that if it, the park doesn't work out, I have an alternative for her. And then when you go to the park, you know, there is an option. Disney, well, many parks offer that. Disney does offer that. And I have to say, I'm extremely grateful for every park or institution that do these things for people with special needs because they don't understand how those options for special needs make such a difference to the point that you can actually go or not go to a park if you don't have a special access. And in this case, you know, Valentina will never be able to do one hour line or something like that. Probably at Thanksgiving can be even more than one hour in, in the park. There's no way she will never be able to do any ride, zero. So the only way to have this special pass, which basically they give it to you, you go to the exit and you enter to the exit. So you don't do the line, you go to the exit and they give you a special entrance. You have one specific time per day. It's usually once every half hour or every hour and so you go there you go there for example at 11 and you can do this this type of ride and then you go to the ride and then you have another one 11:45. so you now you go to another ride and that you go from the back and it allows you to skip the lines which obviously makes the only possible option for valentina to be able to enjoy any ride and of course there will be a reduced number of rides throughout the day but there are enough that you can do by doing that and skipping the lines which also give me enough time for example to bring her to the bathroom she is not potty trained so which very often may mean you know change change your diaper it could be number one number two it could be quite complicated so you need to go to the access to the special bathroom to be able to do that throughout the day so which is very complicated and even eating and feeding can be complicated too so that extra time you have allow you to be able to enjoy the park that way everything as you can see needs to be carefully planned in advance so as simple as let's go to disney world which for most family means i go online i buy a couple of tickets airplane and hotel and then all the rest is history because it's very easy peasy and you can do it and have fun with your kids and everything is about fun here it's an extremely complicated process and i'm pretty sure that every day will be maybe very challenging. We're gonna have some challenging hours throughout the day, but I'm going to enjoy every beautiful hours we're also going to have throughout the day. And then hopefully it will be a success story. Mm, I love that so much. So many hot tips in there too. And I know everyone was nodding along with you about all all of the logistics that go into making a trip happen, right? And it sounds like you have it nailed down. It sounds like you have a really good plan of action. I'm excited to hear how it went and what you learned. And if you have anything to share that you could do better for next time regarding taking our kids to Disney World, that'd be great if you share those with us afterwards. Absolutely. I would love to. <laughs> yeah. Side note, do you remember what the bed is that you have for her? Because we also travel with a bed, but I'm not loving ours. Yes, it's a safety sleeper. I can give you the brand and everything. I can send it to you in by email. Okay. Well, that is so great. I'm so looking forward to you being able to do that as a family. I know how tough that is, but I I can hear how excited you are. And obviously, you know how to handle a blow or a hard day and get through it and still enjoy yourself. So I think it's going to be great. Do you have anything, any advice to share with our families who are listening today um, during the holiday season who are kind of sitting there, right, uh, with joy and grief in the room? Do you have any uplifting words of wisdom for them? Yeah, I know one thing that I will tell people and I always tell people that is that 
make sure to put yourself and your family first when you during the holidays because as a family you deserve those holidays you deserve to connect your parents to your sisters and brothers and sisters and honestly the siblings of your child with special needs also deserve to have a holiday a happy holiday so very often as parents and caregivers because everything needs to go around the kid all that we do what we think about is our kid with special needs and we tend to organize everything around that you just heard about my organization for thanksgiving right and i think that's okay it's okay to do that because otherwise if you don't organize around it's it's, it's very difficult but remember that the, at the end it's all about the happiness of you as a family and the ability to rest during the holiday and to enjoy those vacation they will bring you give you the very deserved rest and enjoy that it will charge you and and only if you're fully charged and fully functional you will be able then to do your best for your for your children in general and especially your children with special need so do not forget that take the time for yourself put yourself first before your child with special need that's the time for you to recharge and if you do that you'll be able to do much better in the future also for the benefit of the entire family, which is really what counts here. Yes, such good advice and critical. I mean, you have to take care of yourself first to be able to help anyone else. Thank you so much for that, Jean-Luca. What you do at Alexion is you build those relationships with those families before you are designing your trials, before you're making decisions, and you're kind of, you have them with you every step of the way. So you're not just plucking people when you need them and making them feel like data and not people and not important. And you're really kind of holding hands essentially through step by step through the process, which makes a huge difference and means a lot and makes trust happen, right? Exactly. Okay. Well, Jean-Luca, you're so fantastic. I really appreciate you joining the podcast today and sharing about your work and about your daughter, Valentina. And it's my honor to speak with you again. And I hope you have a beautiful holiday. And please keep us posted on Disneyland hot tips after <laughs> after you're back. I will do that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for the uh, for talking to me. It's it's my honor and my pleasure. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people, and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. <laughs>